following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. All right, Mark chapter 1, we're going to read verses 35 to 45 again, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer and begin our time in the Word this morning. If you will, look at verse 35. Mark writes this, And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And the leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you in advance this morning in a prayer of confession that we have very hard hearts. And unfortunately, Lord, I fear that for many of us, we are blind as to how hard our hearts really are. And so we ask you this morning to soften them, to break them, to expose our pride, our arrogance to us by your word and through the power of your spirit, so that, so that as we walk out of here at the end of our time together in Mark 1, we have clearly seen how you see us and how differently we look at others. And so, God, we give you this time, as we always do, recognizing that there's nothing special in my words, that your word is powerful, it can change hearts, it can, it can awaken the dead, and we ask that you'll do that this morning in our midst, in Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, I wasn't planning to begin with this, but this morning, around the uh, coffee area, we started having a uh, conversation that actually fits in perfectly, so bear with me for a second. Uh, we were having a conversation, and only old people will remember this, okay? Old being anyone 30 and above, all right? So uh, only old people will remember this. Or ancient people, for those of you who want to define yourselves that way. I won't go there. Uh, I was, we got talking about the old McDonald's Happy Meal characters. Okay? There were four main characters. There was Ronald McDonald. There was the Hamburglar. There was Grimace. Remember him, the purple guy? And then there was a girl, and none of us could remember her name without looking it up. Does anyone in here know the name of the girl? I'm serious. I don't know it either. Birdie? Is that right, Matt? Matt Shellhart cheated and looked it up. All right, thank you, Birdie. It, uh, it took me back uh, to my childhood thinking about that. I don't even know how we got on this conversation. Dave Foster and I started it and just randomly, and, and there we were talking about it, and we had a debate, and we were questioning everyone who walked through the door to see if they could answer the question, and no one could. But thank you, Kathy, for giving us the answer finally. Apparently so, yes. I don't know what to say about that, but there you go. Thank you for answering the question, nonetheless. 
It's been a, one of several instances recently where I have gone back in time, I feel like, to my childhood. A few weeks ago, Damien and I were watching television, uh, I don't know, Saturday night or Sunday night, and we were flipping through the channels, and a movie was starting on whatever channel we had turned to, and so we paused just to see what it would be. And as soon as the music started, it, it was like a time machine taking me back. And I'm pretty sure I can take most of you back with me if I put up one, one picture alone. Are you ready? Here it is. Who are you going to call? Yeah, Ghostbusters. Year was 1984. Ghostbusters was one of the biggest uh, comedy slash sci-fi movies of the year. I think it was the only comedy slash sci-fi movie that year. Uh, maybe even the entire decade. It was groundbreaking, really, in a number of ways. I started looking it up the day after just because I had, it's been 20 years since I had seen the movie. I had forgotten, a, really, a lot about it, so it was fun to watch it again. But but first, I learned it was intended to bring together some of the greatest comedic talents of, of the time. Dan Aykroyd and Harold Ramis wrote the script, and when they originally wrote it, they wrote it with John Belushi, John Candy, and uh, Eddie Murphy in mind. Those were the original group that was supposed to be in it. Belushi died while they were writing the script, so he was replaced by Bill Murray. Can you imagine the movie without Bill Murray? No. Uh, Candy wouldn't commit, and so they replaced him with Rick Moranis. And I don't know what happened to Murphy. Murphy just wouldn't uh, agree to be in the movie either. So now the, the movie that we think of today would have been very, very different if those three guys had been in it as opposed to the guys who were. And just an interesting little note. Second, I learned it was astronomically expensive to make back in 1984. 382 when it was filming, it cost $30 million. Now, that doesn't sound like a lot for movies nowadays, but in 1984, that was an outrageous amount, particularly for a comedy. And part, uh, excuse me, it paid off because third, it was and still is to this day one of the highest grossing films of all time. So they paid $30 million to make the movie, and in 1984 numbers, it made $238.6 million in revenue. In today's numbers, that's $518 million, and that still makes it one of the top 10 highest grossing films of all time to this day. 20-some years later, it has not been taken off that list. That's pretty amazing. Finally, I learned that the reason, and don't laugh at this, but the reason it was so expensive to make, and part of what made it so groundbreaking at the time was the amazing special effects used in the movie. And watching it uh, a couple of weeks ago, I got to admit, the effects did not quite look as special as they did. But when I was a kid, it was incredible and, and everybody loved it. Not to mention, not to, not to fail to mention, I should say, the song. It's on my, my phone, my iPhone. I love that song. Can you name anything else Ray Parker Jr. ever sang? No, but we all know Ghostbusters, so it was a great movie. It was, uh, again, a nu- one of a number of things that's been taking me back of late. And one of the things that has taken me back to my childhood is, funny enough, and no lie, no stretch, nothing, this passage that I have been reading to us now for a few weeks. In, in verses 40 to 42, I ran across the passage that was the basis of my very first public devotional, not sermon, I was like 6th or 7th grade, the years 1989 or 90. I couldn't remember what years I was in 6th and 7th grade. Uh, 1989 or 90. And our teacher, either a speech class or Bible class, I went to a Christian school, asked us to do a devotional. Everybody had to do a little mini devotional. And this is the passage that I picked. So I'm going to give you that devotional today. I'm not going to do anything else, just that. Um, It was this story, this scene that was the basis of that, and I don't remember how I chose this passage, but I do remember 
why I chose it, because even as a child, I was struck with the compassion and love of Jesus that you see here toward this leper in these verses. I mean, the leper sounds so pitiful as he comes to Jesus with these words, if you will, you can make me clean. I I almost picture like an Oliver Twist kind of character walking up and just so sad, so pathetic, wanting to Jesus to help him. And and Jesus could have responded in any way he wanted. He could have shooed the man away, maybe because he was a leper, or maybe because he was just, just busy and the guy's in his way, but he doesn't do that. His response, it's filled with compassion and pity for this man. He says simply to him, I will be clean. And, and, and even as a child, I was moved by this. Why, I don't exactly remember beyond these points here, but, but what compassion, you know, what pity, what, what love that you see here. You can't read this section and not be moved by the heart of Jesus. And that, of course, is what we've been looking at now for the past few weeks as we've been working through Mark chapter 1. Uh, over the courses, uh, course of verses 1 to 34, Mark has introduced to us a number of things about who Jesus is, his identity, his message, his plan, his power and authority. And now here in this last section, verses 35 to 45, he's introducing us to Jesus's heart. And so each week as we've been coming into this, I've been giving you one of these four things. In week one, verse 35, we learn that we should have a heart that truly loves God like Jesus did. And I drew that from the statement here in verse 35, where you see Jesus praying. And we ask the question, why? Why does Jesus pray? In class, help me remember, is it because he needs something? Is it because there's something he can't do? Is it because something, there's something he doesn't know and he needs God to reveal it to him? The answer to all those questions is no. He doesn't need anything from God. What does he need? He just needs God. He just needs his father. He needs that relationship with his father. He loves his father. He loves spending time with his father. And so he pursues that relationship with the father through prayer. And I said that we should do the same. Next, we learn that we should have a heart that never loses sight of what really matters to God because that's the kind of heart that Jesus had. And we drew this from verses 36 to 39 where after Jesus has gone off and he's been praying, Simon and the gang, they, they come looking for him. And when they found him, they told him, everyone's looking for you. And what I told you was, was is this isn't a good thing. That, that every time Mark uses this particular Greek word for looking here, it's always related to something negative. So Judas was looking for a way to betray him. The, the Pharisees are looking for a way to destroy him. It's ten times in Mark he uses this particular word. It's always negative. And I said, okay, what's... What's so negative here? Well, you you get that answer when you look at verses 38 and 39 and see how Jesus responds to to everybody's looking. Does he go back and let them find him? No. He says, we got to go. We got to get out of here. We need to go on to the next town and to the next town after that. Why? So he can preach. Why? Because that is why he has come. In other words, the people of Capernaum aren't looking for him because they want to hear more about the gospel, more about the kingdom of God. They're looking for him because of what he can do for them. They want his miracles, not the Messiah nor his message. And Jesus, Jesus isn't going to have any of that. He didn't come just to perform some tricks there in Capernaum. He came to proclaim the gospel because that is what matters to God. And, and Jesus never lost sight of that, and of course neither should we. And now this week we're going to look at the third aspect of Jesus's heart from here in verses 40 to 42. And that third aspect is this, that like Jesus, we should have a heart that feels compassion for those God loves. 
And just like the last two times, I'm not changing my, my pattern or my style here at all with any of these. Just like last time, I want to simply walk through the text with you here, make some observations about how we see Jesus' heart on display, and then, then ask, what, what does that mean for us? So I want to start by pointing out the setting that Mark gives to us here for this scene. And notice that he doesn't give us a place, nor does he give us a time. And normally, this stands out because normally, if Mark is going to set a scene for us, he's going to do it in a particular place or after a particular event that gives you a time marker. Not this time. This time, the setting is nothing more than an encounter that is absolutely unheard of in Jesus' day. He says, and a leper came to him. Now, those five words, just by themselves, are the setting for this scene, and they are scandalous, to say the very least. And, And I choose the word scandalous on purpose. Because you need to to get your mind wrapped around the situation and understand it like Mark's original readers or hearers would have when they read or heard these words. You and I struggle because we don't quite interact with the whole concept of leprosy in the same way that someone here in the first century would have, that the original readers would have. And so in order for us to appreciate what Mark is describing here by setting up the scene in this manner, we have to stop right here after the very beginning of of the message. We have to stop and really try to understand leprosy like a first century reader would have, because only then are you going to appreciate the scene for what it is. You need to understand leprosy in three ways, three ways to really appreciate what's going on here. First, you need to understand it medically. Medically in the first century, leprosy could refer to any number of skin diseases that generally led to the rotting of the flesh. Now, I want you to just kind of pause and think about this definition that I'm giving you here, because if you don't really think it through, you're going to misunderstand some points. Number one, notice I'm specifying that this understanding is in the first century, meaning if you go and ask a doctor friend of yours today what leprosy is, this is not the definition you're going to get. I'm trying to help you understand it like they would have understood it. Today it would be much more specific. Back then it wasn't, which leads us to number two. In the first century, it was just a catch-all term that referred to a number of different diseases that all shared similar qualities. So you could have ten people sitting in front of you, each of which had a hideous skin disease. And if you're a first century person looking at them, you might say, well, they all have leprosy. You bring those same 10 people to today and you put a doctor in front of them, he might say, well, this person has that and they have that and they have that and they would name them off all individually. But in the first century, they'd lump all of those together because number three, what each disease had in common was that it was contagious or believed to be contagious and that it generally led to the rotting of the flesh. Now, to help you understand what I mean by rotting of the flesh, I'm going to show you some pictures. I'm sorry. But it's important, and I don't mean it in any way funny. I I looked, and I'll be honest, after the first time I looked, I stopped looking, and I almost didn't do this. But I came back to it and said, if we don't get this, we don't appreciate what Jesus' heart here like we need to. So I have picked the two least graphic pictures to help you understand leprosy. Here's what I mean by rotting of the flesh. 
Imagine this face being the one that's walking up to Jesus saying, if you will, you can make me clean. When when Jesus reaches out and touches him, he might have touched hands like this. Hands where the flesh has rotted off. The person is in agony. Again, believe me when I say to you that these were the least graphic pictures available. And when you see these pictures, it helps you understand why the Jews sometimes refer to these people with leprosy as walking corpses. It was as if their bodies were decaying as they were still alive. Because of the open sores and wounds that were common to these diseases, they were highly contagious and greatly feared as there was no known cure at the time. And so medically speaking, in the first century, any disease, any disease that caused this kind of rotting of the flesh, generally speaking, was referred to as leprosy and was greatly, greatly feared. Second, you need to understand it religiously. Because there's more than just a medical thing going on in people's minds as they're looking at this person who's standing here in front of Jesus. Religiously, they had certain commands and laws that had been given to them by God for how they should identify and respond to cases of leprosy. The next time you're bored, sit down and read Leviticus 13 in detail, like real carefully, real slowly. Because Leviticus 13 is given exclusively to the proper identification and response to cases of leprosy. And I'm going to read you just the first eight verses so that you understand what the priests are looking for as they are dealing with this disease. Verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, When a person has on the skin of his body a swelling or an eruption or a spot, and it turns into a case of leprous disease of the skin, on the skin of his body, then he shall be brought to Aaron the priest or to one of his sons the priest. And the priest shall examine the diseased area on the skin of his body. And if the hair in the diseased area has turned white and the disease appears to be deeper than the skin of the body, it is a case of leprous disease. When the priest has examined him, he shall pronounce him unclean. But if the spot is white in the skin of his body and appears no deeper than the skin, and the hair in it has not turned white, the priest shall shut up the diseased person for seven days, and the priest shall examine him on the seventh day, and if in his eyes the disease is checked, and the disease has not spread in the skin, then the priest shall shut him up for another seven days. And the priest shall examine him again on the seventh day, and if the diseased area has faded, and the disease has not spread in the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him clean. It is only an eruption. And he shall wash his clothes and be clean. But if the eruption spreads in the skin after he has shown himself to the priest for his cleansing, he shall appear again before the priest, and the priest shall look, and if the eruption has spread in the skin, then the priest shall pronounce him unclean. It is a leprous disease. Do you see what I mean about detailed? Going right down to to hair color and and spread and depth of the disease. And it's going to go on with more scenarios and more situations and more alternatives that might present themselves so that the priest can identify leprosy from cases that aren't leprosy. And not only does it give them explanation about how to identify the disease, it also gives them the response. Verse 45, the leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose. And he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. And we read this and 
man, this sounds harsh. You're going to have to live alone and, and be an outcast. But remember, apart from a miracle by God, there's no cure. There's nothing that can be done here. And everything about their treatment here is intended to protect. So that their appearance is designed to be a warning. Stay away from me. And in case you don't see me, I have to announce as I walk about, unclean, unclean, so that you don't get too close. And, and I can't be with my family anymore. I can't be with my, my people, my tribe. I have to go outside of the camp and either live alone or live with others who have leprosy. I'm under quarantine this is, this is what God has prescribed to protect his people. Third, you need to understand it culturally, which will be much easier now that you understand it medically and religiously, because culturally, lepers were outcasts. No surprise. They were feared and reviled for two reasons. Number one, they were feared because of the appalling and contagious nature of this disease. You get that now? I mean, if someone walked up to you with hands like that and a face like that and wanted you to, to give them a hug, what would you do? Be honest. You would back away. I would too. Back away in fear, fear of catching it. It's a living death and, and catching this disease was something to be avoided at all costs. Number two, they were reviled because of the belief that leprosy was God's judgment on sin. You see, in Jesus' day, they had come to believe that the reason a person had leprosy was most likely because of some secret sin. Something they had done, they had never confessed, and God was bringing judgment on them. So not only were they, they physical outcasts, they were spiritual outcasts as well. They were just getting what they deserved. That was the belief at the time. They were just getting what they deserved. They're outcasts, they're shunned, kept away, avoided, persecuted, ignored, all of this because of what has happened to them as a good Jew. You would have nothing to do with a leper. You wouldn't go near them and you would not allow them to come near you. Now, do you understand why these first five words are scandalous? This kind of thing doesn't happen. It doesn't. This kind of thing is inexcusable. It's inexcusable that the leper would have the audacity to come to Jesus, and it is inexcusable that Jesus would allow him to get this close. And yet that's the scene before us. This is how Mark opens this up. Every medical, religious, and cultural reason why Jesus and this leper should never meet had been thrown out the door. This leper comes to Jesus, imploring him, Mark says, kneeling before him, and he makes an amazing statement. He says, if you will... You can make me clean. And I'm telling you, folks, this is an amazing statement. Because what faith? What faith? Notice that he doesn't say, if you're able. Clearly, he believes that this man, Jesus, is able to heal him. The only question is whether or not he's willing to. And if that's confusing to you still, just think about it from the leper's perspective. Put yourself in his shoes for a moment. His entire life since he's had leprosy, he has been shunned. He has been ignored. He has been uh, reviled. He has been an outcast. And what he has done in approaching Jesus in this manner is offensive to everything they know. And so as he comes, I can just picture, and Mark doesn't say this, but I can just picture he's walking up to Jesus and he's falling on his knees and everyone else is like, whoa, 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 Jesus, back up. You see who that is? It's a leper. Like he can't see that. Back up, get away from him. 
And Jesus is just standing there. Jesus would have been well within his cultural and religious rights to say to this leper, how dare you? How dare you? Get away from me. And the leper knows this. That's why he's questioning Jesus' willingness here, not his ability. He knows that, that Jesus is able. It's an incredible statement of faith. But the question is, is he willing? But notice Jesus' response, okay? Moved with pity. He stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And I'm telling you, folks, if the setting of this scene is scandalous, Jesus' response is something far beyond scandalous. I don't even know what word we would use. Because with three simple statements, Mark shows us how Jesus responds in every way different than what you would imagine. First, instead of expressing a cultural revulsion to this man, he has pity on him. And and the word that Mark uses here for pity can also mean compassion, affection, and love. These are not words that are typically used of a leper. You stay away from them, you, you ignore them, you reject them, not feel pity on them, compassion and love, yet this is what Jesus feels. Second, instead of withdrawing out of fear of medical contagion, Jesus reaches down and he touches that face. He grabs those hands. Do you you realize that there is a really good possibility that this is the first normal human touch that this man has experienced since he came down with this disease? Third, instead of declaring him to be unclean as the law required the priest to do, Jesus declared him clean as only the Son of God could do. I will be clean. His words are are so brief but so powerful. The man's unsure whether or not Jesus is even willing, willing to, to, to see him, to cleanse him, to heal him. And Jesus says, I will. Just simple, I will. And, and the man knew that Jesus could make him clean. It's such great faith. And Jesus rewards that faith with just two words. Be clean. Be clean. And instantly, instantly the leprosy has to obey. Mark says that immediately it left him and he was made clean. And Jesus' response, you see him go against every mindset and attitude of his day. He clearly, clearly doesn't look at people around him like everyone else does. He feels compassion for those who are marginalized and rejected by society at large, whether that's a leper or a tax collector or a prostitute. Jesus clearly feels compassion for and loves those whom God loves. And like Jesus, guess what? We should do the same. When you consider what Jesus does in this scene, it should force you to reconsider how you judge and respond to the people around you. The fact of the matter is, is that God loves the outcast, the rejected, the despised, the less fortunate, and the sinner. He loves them. Over and over and over again throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament, we see see God's love on display for the poor, for the widow, for the orphan, for the prisoner, for the foreigner, for the slave, for the oppressed. It's not that he doesn't love all the other people, but he clearly has a special love for those people. He loves them so much that he identifies himself with them in a special way. The passage we had Dave read this morning, Matthew 25. Jesus, in talking about his final judgment, says this, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I was hungry, and you gave me food. 
I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. The righteous are confused. Then the righteous answered, Lord, when did we see you hungry or, or feed you and hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and, and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king answers, truly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. He identifies himself with the outcast, the despised and the less fortunate of society. He so identifies himself with them that the help to help them is to help Jesus himself. And so I ask you a question, a series of questions. Who do you want to identify with? With this guy? Or with this guy? Hey, parents, who would you rather your kids play with? These kids? Or these kids? Who would you have rather seen walk in the door cornerstone this morning? This family? Or this family? Be honest. Oh, I went the wrong way. There. Ah! Go back. Well, it won't go. Seth, can you take it one more? There. Thank you. I think it's so easy for us to write people off in our hearts and minds. Far easier than we are willing to admit. Well, you know, maybe not for leprosy anymore, but maybe for AIDS. They have, you know, they got AIDS. They were doing drugs or they're gay or something. They got what they deserve. Maybe for an STD. Well, she was a slut, so she deserved it. Maybe because they're a drunk or a drug addict. Maybe because their life is a mess. or Maybe because they're poor because they've made a whole bunch of horrible life choices. It's okay to write those people off, right? Maybe because of their sin, they're, they're pedophiles, they're homosexuals, they've done these terrible things. It's okay to write those people off because they're just getting what they deserve, right? All the while forgetting that you and I have not gotten what we deserve. All the while forgetting that we were unclean in God's sight. We were repulsive to him because of our sin. And yet, God didn't turn away from us. He loved us. He had mercy on us. He sent his very son to die in our place as repulsive as we were. He sent the most beautiful, precious thing he had to die for us so that he could forgive us. He made us clean through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. We have been forgiven so much, and yet we look at so many people around us with disdain, hatred, and revulsion, and we don't even recognize it. Maybe we're not so different from the people of Jesus' day after all. Maybe we carry all the same biases and fears that they did, just not in relation to leprosy. Maybe we're more like them than we are like Jesus. And therein lies our challenge. But like Jesus, we should have a heart that feels compassion for those whom God loves. Folks, I, I, I hope you know this, and I know we've said these kinds of things before, but the church was never intended to be a social club for the middle and upper classes. It was never intended to be that. 
In fact, Paul tells us what Jordan made a reference to a moment ago. Paul tells us that generally speaking, the wise, the strong, and the noble are not the people who come to faith in Christ. You know why they don't come? Because they don't need a Savior. Everything's great in their world. No, generally speaking, the people who come to faith in Christ are the foolish and the base and the weak. And then God does this amazing thing. He takes the foolish and the base and the weak, and he uses them to put to shame those who are wise, noble, and strong in their own minds. As we think about our own ministry, both personally and corporately, I'm challenging us today to have the heart of Jesus here in Mark chapter 1, verses 40 and 42. To be a church that loves the people that this world despises. They're all around us. Let's be a church that doesn't have everything together because there's so many messy lives sitting in these chairs. If we only want the people who have everything together on the outside, something is wrong with us. We should welcome the messes, welcome the problems, welcome the the sin and the brokenness and the sickness, welcome it. If there was any place it should be welcome, it should be here. It should be with us. Let's, Let's be families that gravitate to the people that everyone else is ignoring. Not to to go hang out with the coolest families on the block, but to be the family that that goes to those that are rejected and alone all the time. Let's not be a cool church. Let's not be a trendy church. Let's be a loving, faithful, and humble church so that the words of Jesus in Matthew 25 will be true of us as well, both individually and corporately, that we served Jesus well by serving to the least of these. Will you bow your heads just for a moment? I just, I just want to give you a, just a second, just 30 seconds a minute, to really stop and examine your own heart. Where, where is your heart in this? How, how do you view those around you who are the less fortunate, the, the needy, the poor, the people whose lives are messed up by sin. I don't want you just thinking of the homeless guy you see at the corner of Virginia Beach Boulevard and whatever. The family down the street that is a mess because sin has destroyed their life. Do you look down on them? Do you just write them off, think, well, they're getting what they deserve, that's it. If you have that heart, I'm asking you right now to go before the Lord and confess it plead with him to change your hard, hard heart. To remember your own sinfulness and your brokenness and your uncleanness and what Christ did for you on Calvary. Jesus, we we are so like the people in your parable. The man who was forgiven so much by the king who then turned around and grabbed one of his fellow servants who owed him pennies and demanded the payment and cast him into prison. We have been forgiven so much and yet we hold so much over others. Lord, forgive us individually. Forgive us corporately. We want to be people. We want to be a church that loves and feels compassion for the people you love, for the people whose lives are a mess, for the people whose lives are destroyed by sin, whose bodies are destroyed, who's, who've made horrible choices, Lord, we want to be a church that loves those people 
There's plenty of churches trying to get the, the other groups. You said you were going to fill these seats with the weak and the despised, the foolish, so that you could make your name great and put to shame all those who are strong. And so God, we give you ourselves and we come and we ask that you forgive us of our hard hearts, that you help us to remember the grace we've been seen, and that you fill each and every seat in this room with those whose lives have been changed by the gospel regardless of their past regardless of what has happened. Give us a heart of love for those people because you love them. Thank you, Jesus, for your word and for our ability to understand it this morning. We ask all these things in your name.